Talk Sheen. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 89 was recorded live November 10th, 2011. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson, and here's some of the articles we're going to have this week. We have Money and Lionfish, Great Scuba Pay, Fish and Corn, and we have the 36th anniversary of the Edmund Fitzgerald sinking and the 150th anniversary of the Keystone State. But before we get into that, I'd like to welcome my co-host for this evening, the <coughs> Dive Mentor Mac. How you doing today, Mac? Doing pretty good. I'm glad to be here. Yes, uh, glad that you came and and uh, brave the white stuff falling from the sky. Did you happen to catch a look at that? Uh, uh, time. Uh, we had a good a good number of uh, frontal systems come in. No collection of snow, of course. Thank goodness. Yeah, but I, I think we're on borrowed time at this point. Well, it's supposed to be up in the 50s and 60s again this weekend. That won't be too bad. Oh, absolutely not. It'd be good for diving. <laughs> yeah, perf- perfect for diving. What else are you going to do? Hopefully by now anybody's got their leaves up, or if they're not, then you don't need to get them up. But what better? I was going to say, it's too wet to do anything with them. Yeah, yeah, it's got to leave them there. Or even better yet, have them blown to your neighbor's yard. Well, I don't have any trees, and I have plenty of uh, leaves in mine from my neighbors. Well, I thought that's what the golf balls are for. I thought the golf balls were to displace the leaves. <laughs> I really should start that project, but uh, I don't know. My, my, my wife's not really keen on having a golf ball pyramid in the backyard for tourists. <laughs> well, either that or what you could do is you could always uh, take golf balls, paint them green, and it'd be like your own uh, golf ball turf. That's true. That's true. Or I could make one of those devices to put out in the lake to collect uh, coral, or in our case, uh, zebras or, or uh, quaggas? other mussels. Yeah. Uh, quaggas and start our own little habitat. Certainly, it wouldn't take long at all. So what we're going to do is we're going to head right on into the news, the first episode, episode, the first article of tonight. Oh, darn it, and an ad kicked in. Is uh, scuba divers eliminate 1,500 dangerous lionfish in the Florida Keys, an event they had down there. They said the final numbers are in, and recreational scuba divers had captured more than 1,500 invasive lionfish through organized events this year. The final event this last weekend saw the removal of 312 more of those pesky lionfish. Uh, the three 2010 events pulled in 664, so they more than doubled their take this year. Or it could just be there were three times as many for them to take. Uh, on Saturday in Key West, 15 teams of registered divers competed for $3,350 in cash and prizes, uh, including categories for the most, the largest, and the smallest. Team Bottle Buddies netted $1,000 for the most with a haul of 110 fish collected in a single-day event and took home $500 top prize for the biggest lionfish category, 13.5 inches. I did not realize that they actually got that large. That's that's a pretty decent size. That would you know, fill I, up your fish tank pretty cl- pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I in, in high school I had friends who had the lionfish in their tank, and they were nowhere near that big. Uh, then somebody took $500 for the smallest, 
and that was at 3.14 inches. And I'm sure that would be easier to get one even small. Well, I don't say easier. I, I'm sure there's potential for some smaller than that. Might be hard to spot. <clears throat> I wonder uh, how they catch them and what they put them in. It didn't say. They did this time, but some of the articles we've had in the past have, have talked about where they've uh, had different uh, things they've handed out. In fact, uh, I think one of them had uh, gloves that they had actually given people who were participating. Wow. Uh, let's see what else they have in there. The, the team, the farthest away is from Chicago, Illinois. They also had some from Austin, Texas and Sunapee, New Hampshire. Uh, uh, event participants observed, uh, filleting demonstrations, enjoy tasting of lionfish caught during the event. And Noah has developed an eat lionfish campaign that brings together fishing communities, wholesalers and chefs to broaden the awareness of this delicious invader. I did. They were edible like that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Well, they're, they're actually supposed to be quite good, uh, tasty. So, uh, and for an invasive species, I say we fish them all out. Well, that sounds like something the Mud Club ought to get a team for. I mean, we could make some money. Yeah, yeah. Grubbers. Yeah, I, I think us grubbers could uh, take take on some uh, some other teams. We have to learn the techniques for finding them, though, since we're not used to seeing fish. How about a vacuum? Well, you got to see them before you can do. You know, I don't know the techniques for looking for fish. I mean, where we're at, we don't normally see any. Yeah, we don't really need to see them, do we? Just can't you go by feel? <laughs> I don't think I'd want to. <laughs> yeah, you just you just stick your nose out there and uh, you'll find them. It'd be like uh, you know looking for porcupines by braille. I yeah. don't know about that. Yeah, probably not the the best idea. Okay, next one up on the docket was Great Scuba Pay. This was the Washington, D.C., and in a political year, there's all sorts of great articles coming out of there. And this was your D.C. government, and they're talking about $100,000 salaries of custodians. Uh, you know, their their payroll is running rampant there in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, they're, they're saying it's back to the Marion Berry days. I guess if you put a local cane up your nose, that might give you a, a reason to pay people a lot of extra money. Maybe it was a hush money. But uh, one of the points of the article is talking about that uh, in addition to custodians making over $100,000 a year, there was a dozen scuba divers on the Metropolitan Police Department who were taking in six-figure salaries. Now, I'd like to know, I, I assume they're police officers first and divers second. So it sounds like you might get paid for being a police officer first and a secondary whole salary for being a diver? It could be. I, w- I wonder if it's like a, like how school teachers, if they take on extra activities that they maybe get a little bump in pay. Uh, I know here in some of the county positions, you got hazmat, you got the dive team, uh, you got sp- uh, tactical unit. So maybe you got a little bit extra money for being a scuba diver, but six figures isn't bad. Of course, I imagine the cost of living in D.C. has got to be a little pricey. I, I imagine it is, but I think, and matter of fact, as we said that, I was just looking that up because I was very curious. And it said police officer recruit is $58,000. Wow. A police officer recruit in Washington, D.C. is fifty-eight. Police sergeant in Washington, D.C. is 80000 A nice. police lieutenant in Washington, D.C. is 98000 Mm-hmm. And a standard police officer is 53, university police officer is 51, transportation officer armed in Washington, D.C. is 56. So uh, maybe he does get a little bit extra for being a diver. 
That, that wouldn't be too bad then. Well, a designated defense marksman is one hundred and forty-one thousand dollars. Nice. So basically, that's a, that's probably another euthanism. Yeah, can you talk today for sniper? One hundred forty-one thousand dollars. Not bad. Not bad at all. We should get jobs in Washington, I suppose. But then again, like you said, cost of living sucks there. Yeah. Well, uh, Washington, D.C., in an unrelated article, they had that per capita, they had more millionaires than uh, most of the United States. They were in the top ten. It, it's but, sort of funny when you think about that, though. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, are you, are you talking about senators or lobbyists? I just wonder what you're doing. Yeah. Well, and then the next one we have up is fish and corn. A threatened species of uh, from the Pilgrim era, uh, they're reducing the take rate this year. Uh, the Fisheries Commission has stepped in to try and rebuild a population that heavy, heavily harvested East Coast fish with connections to American history. It's the Manhattan. So I'm not really familiar with, with this fish. Um, as the most heavily harvested fish in terms of pound on the East Coast, the numbers have dropped to 10% of its colonial era population. So on Wednesday, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission voted 14 to 3 to reduce the amount that may be caught by about 25% compared to the previous year's catch. That should mean that 60,000 metric tons more fish in the water to help the population begin to rebuild. So if that means that a 25% reduction, that what are they taking 18, 180,000 metric tons of that fish a year? Yeah, and it's not, they don't eat it. It's normally like they said here for... Uh, fertilizer, bait, and animal feed. It sort of looks like a, a perch, doesn't it? It, it kind of does. Uh, it, it does have that kind of perch look to it. Uh, well, a Houston-based company catches 70 to 80% of, the, of it, and it turns it into fish meal and fish oil at its Reedville, Virginia plant. Huh. Uh, they say they're, they're willing to take the cuts. They dispute the findings, but they said you know, if it's going to improve the, the number that are out there. I mean, it, it it helps them either way. I mean, yeah, I'd like to take more now, but you know, when you consider they're taking most of the catch, uh, you know, they're going to make money either way. Right. Well, it talks about here, it goes from the fish range from Maine to Florida, and they eat mostly plankton, but they're food for everything else. And they said uh, striped bass, bluefish, Atlantic tuna, cod, halibut, redfish, turtles, osprey, loons, they all depend on that fish. And they don't want to have it overfished because then that cuts everything else down too. Oh, exactly. Everything has uh, its its part in the circle of life. Well, this next one, we have a few articles. And Mac, I'm looking at a little bit different one than I sent you. I'll paste it into the chat for those following along. And we have a healthy chat room this tonight. Uh, I, I guess there's uh, Rich is doing his podcast a little bit before ours. So there, we have some people doing double duty, trying to Competition. both at the same time. What's that? Competition. Competition. So on, on the Fitzgerald here is, uh, have you listened to the song today by Lightfoot? I didn't listen to it today. <laughs> I've heard it before. The ballad, the wreck of the Edsmond Fitzgerald. It is really a haunting tune. It is. It was. Uh, my dad had the album, and I've listened to it a few times. Uh, uh, Gordon Lightfoot is is okay. I I can't say that I like to rock out with him all the time, but uh, he did have some good some some good melodies. I think he made out pretty good on that one. Oh, yeah. I would think he did anyway. You would think so. Uh, but uh, on November 10th, which is the day we're recording this show, uh, all, at points around the Great Lakes, bells are being run 29 times for the sailors who went down to the bottom 
on the SS Edmund Fitzgerald, and that was in 1975. So. Okay, sorry about that. I had to get my my little plug. You had to get your Gordon fix in. (laughs) Yeah, you can't talk about the Fitzgerald without listening to that song at least once. Yeah, now Dave was singing along. (laughs) We should have taped that part too. Yeah, maybe that'll be our our, our mail-in segment. Everybody sing a couple bars and send it on in. Well, the thing is, we're right here by that, and I remember when that sank, and the big controversy about why it sank, where it was at, how come the people, you know, they didn't find any of the 29 crew. Uh, it was that way for months. Uh, it was really, I won't say entertaining, because it, it was freaking serious, but you just don't imagine a ship that big sinking in 1975, which is current, and not knowing where it's at, what the heck happened to it. Yeah, I mean, we we in 1975 we're pretty technically advanced. You know, we have radar, depth finders, magnetometers, metal detectors, ROVs. We had technology, but just to have something disappear and have no idea where it is. Yeah. Uh, um, I I vaguely remember it, and I probably remember it from years after. Let's see, in 75, I was probably seven. Oh God, never! I'm sorry about that. Like, <laughs> how old was I? <laughs> <laughs> You do not have to disclose. Isn't there some law about that, HIPAA or something? Well, let me tell you, I was way past 21. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, we have everybody in the chat room is now saying how old they were. So uh, yeah. so that was, uh, now one thing I didn't realize is that the Edmunds Fitzgerald was built on the River Rouge on the Detroit River. Yeah. So uh, there must have been a uh, factory there uh, near, uh, that, that would be where the near the Ford plant, wouldn't it? Well, it's Great Lakes Engineering Works of uh, the River Rouge. Oh, okay. So, 729-foot ore carrier. And also celebrating uh, an anniversary was 150 years, the Keystone State, which was a a paddle wheeler, steam-powered, that went down. Uh, It went down to Gale and Lake Huron on November 10th, 1869. At the time, it was the second largest passenger vessel on the Great Lakes, it was en route to Milwaukee when its crew of 33 perished near Port Austin. What's still amazing is if they had been a little faster when she sank, she might have been closer to shore. And I think that was a big controversy is exactly where she went down. Oh, and the Fitzgerald? Yeah, I was going to say, you don't really remember that. But she was actually inside of a different era, a different ship. They had just finished talking about each other to, or to each other. And the radar switched and the captain looked back over to see where the Fitzgerald was, and I wasn't there. Yeah, I, I've I've seen a few episodes on it where they they talk about the other ships in the area keeping an eye and the communication, and it was there, and then it wasn't. So, it, you know, kind of. And it, it, one thing I do remember about the '70s is uh, Bermuda Triangle talk. I yeah. can remember talking about that. So it almost seemed like we had our own little Bermuda Triangle going on. Well, we do have the Bermuda Triangle now. You know that, correct? But it's not that far up because she sank at uh, about 17 miles from the entry to Whitefish Bay. She's uh, sitting at about 530 feet. Uh, and there actually has been, other than submersibles, there have been a couple of divers who have actually dove that 
And of course, right now, since it's Canadian, uh, they don't let you do that anymore. They don't like you taking any kind of pictures, even with ROVs. And I, I think that it's not necessarily a shrine, but I can't think of the other word they use for it. Uh, like a place of burial or Yeah, or it's like with the, the military ships, you know, it's a war memorial. I, I don't remember if that's just a, remo- a memorial or what. And they said it's because the families are still alive. A hundred years from now, it'll be a little different. Yeah, you know, and I do hope that that is true because that's a little bit of a contradiction sometimes. You know, we're we're diving on objects where people had perished, uh, you know, and it's just that it's far enough back that nobody remembers and you don't think of it. But, you know, anything more recent, it seems that, you know, I, I guess there's room for a little bit of discretion. I mean, there, there's plenty of other dives, but, you know, I, I wonder what, what point does that change? I think like they were talking about is when you don't have firsthand relatives still alive. And I'll paste this other one in, and uh, that one actually has a link to, I believe, a video. Okay, and then one of the last articles we have is Boat Train, What's the Difference? Scuba Divers Locate a Sunken Boat. So uh, this one was up in Canada. They were out, uh, looks like a dive instructor and some of his recent open water students had been searching for a train, and in the process of looking for the train, they found a boat. Now, did you look at the picture real good? Uh, let me see. It's coming back up. I looked at it uh, when it, when I first researched the article. Had a little well, bit of a... What's that? Yeah, they were talking about they don't believe it's been down there but a couple of years. They had looked and talked with the uh, Royal uh, Canadian Mounted Police about it. They had no record of it being sunk. But looking at the boat, it looks like there's still an engine on it. And I can't believe... I got to believe they're registered up there. So one would think there'd be a decal on it. They could backtrace that. And you got a serial number on the engine. You could look that up. It would be quite interesting to go back through the records and find out if it had insurance on it. Then you could figure out who the owner was. Yeah, because it looks what they're talking about, and the article still doesn't come up for me, so I'm doing it from memory, is that, uh, um, oh, no, I can't even remember, remember what I was saying. Uh, they, they had the boat. Uh, uh, well, oh, I, I know what I was going to get at. Is that uh, they were hope he was either going to charge the person the recovery fee or he's going to keep it as a dive boat. <laughs> huh. So you're saying they actually found out who owned it? Well, they don't know yet. Uh, the uh, police up there are, are going to research it. They're going to backtrack. They can probably, they might not find who currently owned it, but they should be able to find somebody who owned it at some point in time, and they're going to find out if they want it or not. But uh, the person who's got it, who the guys who discovered it, uh, he said he, that he'd be willing to give it back, provided they reimbursed him for the, uh, recovery fee. Did you catch in the article that he had actually brought it back a couple times? Yeah, that they sank it and then brought it back up. Oh, because he was using it for uh, his um, students to practice their skills for yeah. salvage. It's actually a class. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of cool to find something and be able to lift it. That's one of those things I still want to do. Want to do a he little also, bit of recovery that way. He's also said the engines, uh, plural. I uh-huh. didn't see engines on that, but then again, the picture could be a little bit skewed. That's yeah, a nice looking engine, though. Yeah, it didn't look like something that should have engines. And I don't see a lot of debris on it. And if that had been zebras, that would have been covered. And there isn't any. There's a little bottom scum. But the windscreens look good. The horns are good. Still got the lights on the aft end of it. I mean, that looks like a decent boat. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't too bad. Uh, you know, it kind of had that dated look. Had that nice uh, 1970s orange. And I, yeah. I think we brought the website down. I'm trying to get to it. Now I'm just getting unavailable. Huh. I wonder why I got it. Well, you just must have gotten there before I did. Uh, 
Well, it's interesting because I would also like to know about the uh, training they're supposed to be looking for. Yeah. You know, no details yeah. on that. That would have been interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a, it, and it's amazing how many trains I hear about. I just do not associate trains with something that is going to show up in the river. We've got uh, Clive Cussler's had trains in a couple of his books, which are, I'm, I'm betting the that part of his story was based on some historical fact. We've had a few articles where we've had people looking for trains. Remember the one where they, they had the train that was, uh, they were floating it on a barge and it tipped over. Yes. And I remember looking at that barge thinking that was destined to fall in. That was just inviting, inviting it to go on in. And then there's some where the trains collapse off a bridge. Now, what's the one that we have around here? What uh, there... we have here is in Dayton Lake. Dayton Lake. That does not make any sense to me. Why is there a train in Dayton Lake? Well, I researched that one because I looked for it. And I went back 100 years looking at the tracks. And if you look where they say the train is at and where the tracks are, it sort of makes sense. Only from the aspect it didn't fall in. It either had to be dumped in or deliberately placed in the lake, especially where it's at. Oh, okay. So uh, it might have been one of those things that was easier than scrapping it was just to, to drop it in the lake? Yeah, and it's also not like a when we're talking about the steam engine, you know, with the big cab on it, the big coal cart. That's not the type that they're talking about here. It was a smaller one. I talk, I, 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 like the narrow gauge tracks used to have was like a donkey engine is what they called it, a small one. Mm-hmm. That's got to have been what it was. If you look into space, and I've got pictures and aerials of that area, Part of it is in a little swamp part where they had a um, used to have a building for parts and pieces for the railroad and their cars. Some of the junk in there is actually parts of trains, but not a train. The train mm-hmm. is off to the right-hand side, but the sediment layer is so deep, it's all covered now in sediment. Okay. It was actually located by Lieutenant Buhlman of the uh, Marine Division many years ago when they were rebuilding the dam and they sort of drained a lot of the lake. So okay. the water level went down, but they were they were actually looking for a body, not for the for the train. But as you always do, you're looking for something and you find something else. Yes. And, uh, he says he went there looking for the body, actually found the remnants of a train in that same area. But it's also covered with sediment, so they were probing and that's how they located it. There was no whistle on it and they didn't take the whistle. That's what everybody says. I know it's a train, still had the whistle on it. Well, you know, I know that if a diver finds a train and it has a whistle, it ain't going to be there when they walk away. (laughs) Yeah. Because you take it for identification purposes. Yeah, well, that's going to have some sort of number on it, typically. But if it was that old of a train or that type of train, it might not even had a whistle. Right, correct. Or especially if they dumped it there, wouldn't they have taken it off before they dumped it? You would have thought so. So when they tell me, yeah, and the whistle was still on it, yeah, I go, yeah, sure. Okay. And I think I pasted this in a couple of times, so I apologize if I threw this in more than once. But this next one is the video of the week. We have a scuba middle school, and I'm saying middle school because that's what we call it in the U.S. This article's from the U.K. It says scuba diving on timetable for Hull School. And these are some uh, younger kids. I, I, I would call them upper middle school age or maybe freshman in high school. It says uh, six youngsters were given a chance to take part in the hour-long sessions with three instructors uh, from one of the local dive uh, uh, shops in the area. It was really good. I really, really enjoyed it. It is harder than you think. When I went under for the first time, I was screaming with my mask on. 
It's a great experience to be given in school. Not everyone can afford scuba diving. This allows people to try. Uh, another one said it was good, but quite a challenge. So excellent. Well, this is two weeks in a row now. We've had where uh, we've had like last last week with the fire department mm-hmm. put in, uh, an opportunity for people to get uh, some scuba time. Yep. There's another one. It looks like what the Patty does for their introduction to scuba for young people. Yeah. Now, what I thought was interesting was uh, uh, w- one of the leaders of the program says, uh, when you think about all the opportunities that are coming on board in now an offshore wind energy and in that area, there's going to be opportunities to go into that business. So they're, they're almost saying, is it like a vocation that they're going to need uh, scuba divers for some of these offshore projects? Uh, do you think that's the case? I could lead to it. It's like going to a professional dive school. If you don't know how to dive and you think you're going to like that for a vocation, it's better to find out if you like diving by being a scuba diver. And then it's easier to transition into being a commercial diver. That's very true. Much easier to find out uh, when you don't have so much at stake. Well, it's like doing underwater uh, welding. It's easier to teach a welder to dive than it is a diver to weld. Oh, that's true. Oh, okay. Now, now that we're done with it, the boat, that boat picture did come up. It doesn't look like there'd be multiple motors on that boat though. I, I didn't think so either. No, I'm looking at it. That appears to be, I'd say a fiberglass hull, uh, you know, a closed bow. I'm going to say about 17 feet, maybe. So uh, yeah, yeah, they I'm, were saying what, 14 feet, 14 feet. Yeah. That'd be, po- that'd be probable too. Four, yeah. 14 foot fishing boat. Uh, late sixties, early seventies. Yeah. I would say that's pretty close just by the, the style, but that, that motor on there. Yeah. yeah maybe they had a trolling motor along with it. Uh, they also talked about that there was lunch <laughs> still in there. Yeah. I, I don't think whoever sank it wanted back. No, no. Well, I, I don't, but when, if you're going to intentionally sink your boat, I would think you would have kept your lunch. So yes. Unless you can find some, uh, pants and shoes with concrete around it. Oh, ouch. Yeah. Yeah, it might not have been voluntary. Okay, well, that does it for the news for this week. And now we'll go on to talking about some of the diving. Uh, I, I didn't get any diving in this last week. I had uh, friends some friends coming in from out of town. It's like all blurring together. <laughs> it does that, doesn't it? If you don't it write it down, it's like, what did I have for lunch Tuesday? Not a clue. Yeah, yeah. So we did have uh, friends come into town, uh, and and uh, and Jim and Stacy came over. So Jim, who was on the program before, he he was over. Uh, but uh, you got to dive in, didn't you? Yeah, uh, Kim and I went out to uh, do a recovery. Remember that large object I talked about six weeks ago that was really heavy, really it was black, um, semi rectangular, and. Mm really smooth on all three sides I could see in the ends. Yes. I couldn't move it. <laughs> uh-huh. so we went back out more of a recovery effort. We took the boat because there's no way I could have put a lift bag on it and drug it across the river again. So we took the boat. We got all prepped for it, went across the river. And uh, since six weeks ago, the, the height of the river has increased substantially with all the rain and runoffs. And the current has picked up tremendously. And things that were there six weeks ago are no longer there. And things that were not there are there, like trees. So I went down, put a line on it once I found it. And then I was able to rotate it about 40 degrees so I could get my hand under it, looking for tumblers and a a latch handle. And there was none. It was smooth. So I still do not know what it is, but it 
it's not a safe, so I did not bring it up. Now, so you've seen all six sides of it? Well, four sides, yeah, all six out on the top and the bottom. I have no idea what it is. It's heavier than a mother. Uh, the only thing I did notice was there is like an indent in the top that I can put my thumb in. And that's all I know that's there. The visibility was three to four feet when the sun would come out, but I was under the shadow of the bridge. So I was still a little limited, but uh, don't know. Now, why it? I had that uh, NCR register. It was not there. I did find it 20 feet behind me, caught in a shopping cart part of it. So I brought that up to show Ken that, see, there's a, there's part of this, because I talked about the um, device that you use for numbers, that calculator, the uh-huh. old manual ones. That was nowhere to be found. See, that, but, uh, that just tells you that... Uh... It, it, there's always an opportunity to go where you've been before and find new things. Oh, absolutely. And things you find will collect somewhere else. Yeah, it'll turn up. It, it was pretty neat. It's really amazing, though, that you can find a brand new pop bottle on the bottom, junk, you know, into all the debris, and not four inches from it is a bottle that's probably 150 years old. Uh, there was one really old bottle. It looked like a really just a regular plain thin wall. And then it looked like it had a neck went up about three inches and then a flat top. It's like, that was really unique looking. Then there's funnels around there. I brought up pump handles, the old water pumps. It's like, what is this here? Do you want this? No. Of course, you saw the pictures, so you know what else I found. Or did you see the pictures and the oh, treasure yeah. for the knife? Now I got to go click on the treasure. Yeah. Okay. Let's Wait see what... till you come and look at it. Oh, so, yeah, I, I, I saw that. Now that I see it again, I remember. Right. So the bottle have any embossing on it? Matter of fact, it did. It was actually, um, uh, oh, I was going to say cursive writing script yeah. in the front, and it was really faint. Uh, so Ken has that. So he, he did keep that as a, a sample of something we found out there. Now, but, that is, uh, is that, was that a toy or is that a real object there? That was a real object there. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. And you'll have to click on over to the Mud Club on the treasure site if you want to see what we're talking about. It's always interesting what you what you find in in that well, river. Since we went on a recovery, we really did not bring anything back per se. But there was like the traffic cones. We uh-huh. found some that were like three feet. Got the small ones or maybe a foot, foot and a half. Didn't bring them. I mean. Brought him up, asking if he wanted anything. Nah, so we just left it, which is unusual for us. Right. I used to right. like to bring it up, take a picture, and then put it in the trash. Yeah. But there was just so much stuff down there. Uh, you guys haven't dove there yet. Is this the spot where we dove two years ago? Yeah, sort of. It okay. was across on the other side. Back oh. where we used to dive in the old days. Okay, so you're went, on the hospital side then. Yes, and we went upstream of the hospital part. That's where I was finding milk bottles. Oh, upstream of the hospital park. I think I actually kept the milk bottle, too, I think, we gave, or Ken has. Well, I've kind of wondered, uh, did you go up on that side up to the to the island? No, we we were, for this particular day, we just stayed in that one area, looked for that one item, and then I grubbed around a little bit. My fins were cramping my feet, so uh, I used his bigger size, which are really nice fins. If you have to take a look at somebody's fins that are heavy, mm-hmm. they're not going to float. But the yeah. pocket was really good for my feet because I put extra socks and then ear preams inside. So it bulked them up a little bit. So it cramped my foot with mine. So I used his fins. 
But uh, yeah, if it's three, four foot visibility and you needed it because you got the trees out there and you've got some rebar that I don't remember, all pointed in the direction in which the current is forcing you against. Yeah. So when you're down there, you want to go hand over hand and you want to back up slow so you don't get something caught in your head or your back. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff. We could do really, really good on a on a grubbing dive there. Well, that just to me means that we probably need to get more divers in there just so that you got a little bit of backup and. <laughs> so yeah that, that's uh that's interesting and in the chat room we had somebody ask what is grubbing so i'll let you give the definition for that one i'm not sure there is a definition but what we do or what i do is i like to get on the bottom in the river or lake you put your hands down in the in the debris or gravel loose pack and you look for stuff in the river there it's it's really nice because it's got gravel bed in the middle off to the side, there's not a lot of silt buildup. So what you will find is on bridges and under bridges, people toss saves, guns, ammunition, bicycles galore, shopping carts. And when that goes into the water, it usually will collect and stand bottom because it's pretty heavy. And other gear and stuff coming downstream would gather in it. Uh, in those areas, I found some good whiskey jugs, the old type you see in the movies with the cork in them. Uh, I've got a couple of those out of there. You name it, you'll find it. Anything somebody will have in their pocket and lose on the surface, you will find under a bridge. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Uh, so some 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 great opportunities to find. And uh, so you can do grubbing in rivers. Uh, we also do it in some of the inland lakes, depending on the lake. Pawpaw has been a, a favorite of ours to do some grubbing in. Uh, and then you sometimes will use tools to help you with grubbing, don't you? Uh a lot of times I'll take a river stick. It's what we call a river stick. And it can be almost any kind of object that you can use with a tether that you can either impale into the bottom or hit objects in there to help keep you in a position. And then you can grub around with the currents fast. You can also use it to dig with. So having a tool with you is not a bad idea. If you're working in where it's loose pack, I also have stainless steel prods that are anywhere from a foot and a half to three feet long. Then I can go in loose pack and I can cover a lot of area that's a lot less tiring on the body because you're not using your hand. You're using a thin prod and you can check out a lot of places you can't otherwise. And they're good for getting away from alligator snapper turtles, things like that. <laughs> well, the one thing I've noticed about the prods is that you, you, after a while it becomes an extension of your hand. And just by the tinking that it makes when you run across something, you can kind of get an idea of what you've come across. That's right. You you gather that, and it's like both an audible and a feeling. You can actually feel it clink when you hit glass. It gives you a different frequency or vibration as it does when you hit rock or concrete or metal. And from that, it's like, ooh, I want to go look at that. And obviously, if you're in a hard pack and all of a sudden you're swishing by and you hit something and it stops your prod, you just follow your hand down to it. That's where you find your fishing rods because you just hit part of the rod that's sticking up. Found two of those down there, too. So exactly. yeah, the prod is really good. Yeah, that prod going through the silt. Uh, I, I have to say, though, my best finds have still been with my hands, and it's weird how that happens. So I'll be swinging around with a prod or the river stick or something, looking, and then my hand will hit something, and you'll instantly feel it. That's how I, you know, my, my best milk jug was found that way. And then even sometimes it's amazing how small your hand, your hand even with gloves, you know, we're wearing seven mil gloves, you know, little bit tore up by uh, zebra mussels and stuff, but you can find a lot of excellent items there in the river. And it's a great time of the year now. Uh, somebody in the chat room had mentioned that 
they would love to go in the summer. We have a challenge of doing much river diving in the summer because we're going to shut down uh, boat traffic. You know, they have to stay away from our dive flags in some spots of the river. It's not big enough. Uh, so what we tend to do is we tend to do it this time of the year. We don't. I noticed that the dock was still in there in Niles. So they should be about ready to pull that out. Uh, it was in last week, but you're right. They should be pulling that out anytime. Um, I like to have it because it gives you a good staging platform to put your tank and your gear as you're getting in the water. Yeah. And uh, actually, last year we had that for the first couple of uh, times, you know, when I started icing over, I had that skim ice. Yeah. We had it out there once or twice and then bingo, it's gone. Yeah. Uh, have you been out there this year? Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been out there a couple of times. Jim and I went... Oh, it's probably, it was before the Cooper River dive, I think we had been out, uh, before the leaves uh, got in the river. So, and, and we came across your stacked bottles. Uh, that was the <laughs> one, if you remember, where we, we pretty much determined that that one uh, object, uh, we're convinced it's a Model T body. Right, and I haven't been out there to play with that since I got sidetracked up at the bridges, both the, uh, the railroad bridge and the other two bridge, Main Street and then Broad River Bridge. Yeah, you, you had to go and find another sword. Well, I thought I'd look for the, the, the shield that goes with it. Maybe <laughs> chain all that's on the horse. I'm looking for that, too. So right there. And that's in a small stretch of river. Uh, you yeah. know, Saint, the, the St. Joe River, That's it's a couple hundred miles long if you go from uh, where it goes out at St. Joe, Michigan, and goes all the way up through South Bend, Indiana, and beyond. So uh, we cover just a small section of that river. Uh, well, the average depth of the river, total average depth maximum is 20 feet. The average in most places will be 9 to 12 feet. Uh, where we're diving there at the bridge, you come where we entered, you go straight out. You hit a sandbar to the first leg of the bridge. You're on your belly because you're, you're that shallow. Then you go down in a dip. You come back up in the middle of the river. It's shallow again, meaning 6 feet. But there's some sections out there that there's a tank out there bigger than your car. And it's like, I have no clue where that tank, you know, when I say tank, a big cylinder tank. Right. Uh, I have no idea where it came from because nobody pushed that off the bridge. And uh, there's a parallel, not a parallel. If you're on one bridge and you're looking down, some days the visibility is well enough that you can find pilings going off at about a 45 degree angle to the bridge. So last, well, not last, but I did go out to take a look at those pilings. There must have been another bridge out there that went sideways. And you will find all sorts of stuff, and that's where I found one of the jugs, is around those pilings. Yeah, I, I love pilings. Pilings are always a good spot because things can oh, get yes. caught up in them. And then, yep. uh, you know, at some point there was a, a deck on top of it that people would drop stuff off of. I mean, nothing attracts yep. kids to throw things in the water and watch it sink like a, a bridge or boardwalk. Well, it still amazes me that you can be out in the middle, you know, a couple hundred feet on either side, letting it do a drift dive using your, your grubbing tool or your, your river stick to sort of retard your speed. And you'll come across hubcaps of different sizes. You will find bottles, like why in the middle where it's not that deep, but it is, you know, you got the turbulence and the flow. But yeah, I just love it. You just can't tell what you're going to find out there. Uh, somebody was asking when you said tank. Did you mean a military tank? And, and you're talking I probably wish. like a fuel oil tank? Yeah, correct, a fuel oil tank. Now, the only tank was at that place we talked about over at Fort Custer. Yes. There was supposed to be a tank there and a, an, um, an aircraft. Yeah. But that's on the other side of the island, and we'll have to save that for another day to prove it's there. Yeah. 
Yeah, Fort Fort Custer is in Battle Creek. That's uh, an old military base, uh, probably originated uh, probably Civil War times and is currently being actively being used. Isn't it Air National Guard there now? There is an air base near there, but that's all. That's the Army. Uh, actually, there's a little history about that, that they actually uh, restricted diving there for several years. Uh, some divers were down and they came back for some interesting uh, artifacts. Uh, interesting from the fact they were explosives yeah. because it was a military base. They were finding explosive devices in the water. So they closed it for a couple of years. Uh, they had divers and the Navy came out to actually go through that section and try to retrieve all the munitions that one might find. Well, being that it's got a silty bottom, it's not deep, 40, 45 feet. And out in those areas, it's pretty silty. If you don't have a prod, you know, there's a good chance they miss something. But you'll find boats out there, meaning military boats, like the old um, landing craft, except they were made of wood instead of the metal. So there's, it's, it was fun to dive out there. So, so you're saying that if you're diving out there, you should use a crowbar as your river stick and just whale that around. I was going to suggest that you might want to be a little more delicate. <laughs> they don't want you using detectors either. And they don't want you to be able to uh, find them. But uh... Well, I was thinking more of electronically stimulating them to go boom. No. So, so you don't take magnetic class down there and... Yeah. So anyway, they said you're, you're not allowed to take metal detectors out there. And I, it, I'm sure a combination. Old munitions, I'm not too much worried about the electronic impulse. Newer munitions might be a little awkward. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's Fort Custer. But there's a, there's a lot of great grubbing spots that we've got. Uh, now, uh, what's your strategy, Mac, for finding a new grubbing spot? How, how do you go about uh, researching that? Uh, I like libraries and I like the local library to a little town in the middle of nowhere. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but you go there and you'll take a look at the history of the place and you can get the local maps, find out where the old bridges used to be. And some of them are only three feet deep. Well, I don't care. Three feet deep is three feet deep. People don't normally rummage through there. Therefore, you're going to find stuff they tossed off the bridges in the old days. But I look for old paths, old bridges, look for the old dams. Look for fords, used to where they'd have the old barges that would go across, that you'd have the, the rope and you'd pull the barge across. Look for places they used to do portering or the, the current would change or the path or deepness. So they take it from one boat, put it to a different boat, like a flat bottom. That's one way to do it. Yeah. Uh, look for the old town was. And when they it either burned to the ground or got bulldozed into the river, where is that at? Yeah. Uh, Claire is a good example of that. Yeah. Well, the, the, uh, also dumps, any dumps, you know, a lot of, uh, towns would have their dumps right there on the edge and they, you know, whatever they wanted, they just pushed right on into the river or the river has changed course and undermined the old dump. So that stuff is starting to be exposed again. Yeah. Right. And that's why kayaking is, is a good deal. Or you talk to kayakers and say, well, when you guys are, you know, going under, did you see bottles on the side of the embankment? Yes. Like, like a few of our people have found items like that, then you you need obviously transport to get there, which I use my kayak, just mount the tank on it and go for it. Yeah, we, we mentioned uh, that, but a good spot that we need to check out there is in uh, Bering Springs, where there's a lot of history, but we've also got that dam there. And over the years where you have spring flooding and uh, they get to the conditions where they got to open a dam up for some reason, that's a lot of water flowing and that's anything that's down there has to collect somewhere. Well, again, we did do a good bit of diving there this year for bottles, and I thought we did pretty good. Oh, yeah. uh, visibility oh, yeah. was not very good, uh, but we were working near the shore, 
where it's been undercutting the trees and then sort of getting the bottles out of the roots of the trees, uh, which is fun. Yeah, those are some amazing pictures. If you head over to the Mud Club site, you can uh, see. Now, are those in the treasure section as well? If they scroll farther on down, they'll see those. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the treasure, just general bottles we've been finding and where we found them at. Yeah, and then uh, kind of an unrelated, did your daughter find anybody from Samoa yet? No, she has not, by George, and I'm still looking. <laughs> so if, if anybody from Samoa is out there, you know, nobody, somebody from Samoa, tell them to go to iTunes, look for KNK. Uh, Katie and Kylie Mack out of Paris, France. They have a podcast, and they're looking for somebody from Samoa so they can get it on their little map. Yeah, so that'd be a great, great for them to do. Uh, oh, also, go ahead. I was just say absolutely. And if you ever get to Paris, if you give them a call, hey, you can you can usually get some free tourist time there. They'll show you around. You got somebody who speaks the language, so give them a shout. <laughs> You're going to get them a, a line of business there as tour guides. I think I'd appreciate that. <laughs> I got to get to France. I, I want to go over there. Maybe my wife and I will have to go. We'll leave the kids here and then we'll go go there to France. I always encourage people to take the sewer tour if they've never done that. Sewer <laughs> tour. Absolutely. Paris had the first actual real big sewers and drain systems. Oh, oh that's right. Yeah. Yes. yeah they, they, they built they, them all with brick. Oh, yeah. They had this huge wooden ball that they actually use and runs through the through some of the tunnels. That's how they clean that out. Oh, and that's right. As, as you would think it is. Ah, I was so, going to say mean, that might be good. That might be good for some grubbing, but maybe not. Oh well, I checked into diving the, <laughs> the, the canals and stuff there, and they don't let you do that unless oh. you're doing a working job or you're with the police. But dive in the canal if you get the opportunity to around Notre Dame. Uh huh. Give me the chance, baby. You know what we I need mean, to do is we we need to somehow. Maybe that's what we need to do. That needs to be our video version of the show, Mac, is have them uh, bring us in, you know, uh, diving in places you're not allowed to dive in. You know, bring some cameras in and, uh, you know, go and see what's down there. That's true. And I've, I've talked to my daughter there to find out how I can get, when I come over and visit next time, how I can uh, get permission to go into the water without accidentally falling in with my scuba gear. Yeah. I just happened to fall in and I had these tanks on my back. Now, you look at the history that you've got in Europe and to be diving around their bridges and stuff. Oh, man. Uh, well, I wouldn't give you my right arm because it would impede my swimming, but it <laughs> would be really neat to go out there and, and muck around in their stuff. I would it's, love it. It certainly would be. So, uh, again, for some of our uh, self-promotion, uh, make sure you head on over to our uh, Facebook page at Facebook forward slash Scuba Obsessed. Also, our website, scubaobsessed.com. The Mud Club site is mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. We also just this week launched our Google Plus page. Not quite sure what we're going to do with it, but it's on there. And uh, I will give you the URL, but it's it's uh, take four people's social security numbers and mix them together. And that would be easier to remember than the link. So uh, what we do is go on to Google Plus. Do a search for Scuba Obsessed. You'll be able to find it. Or you can do a, uh, a search for my page Darren Jilson, D-A-R-I-N-J-I-L-L-S-O-N. Or you can actually head over to the Scuba Obsessed website. We have our uh, contact information, and we've added Google+. And uh, Claire also has uh, some Google Plus sites, so you can follow us there. Still not quite sure what what, uh, Google Plus is going to end up being, but we'll figure out something. We also love to have you put your push pin in our scuba obsessed map so you can get to that as well that's uh 
on our fan site off of Scuba Obsessed. So you go to Scuba Obsessed, one of the drop downs we have our fans, and uh, you can put your pin in there. That's where all our first class fans are. And of course, we also love those five star reviews. So you can do five star reviews and iTunes. We also have the five, um, not even call them five star reviews, but you can call them five star reviews talk shoe. So you can uh, uh, also subscribe there and leave some comments on talk shoe. And recently we've added ourselves to Stitcher Smart Radio. So you can go uh, type in Stitcher, S T I T C H E R dot com forward slash scuba. And that will get you uh, into Stitcher Radio where you can download the application to your phone. And then you can listen to us and you don't have to download the whole uh, art, uh, not article show all at once. It will allow you to start streaming it right away. And that's actually how I listen to the show. Every one of these I do <laughs> listen to and critique and I still can't stand the sound of my own voice. So uh, there we have that. Mac, you have anything else that you need to plug? Well, where are we diving this week? <laughs> I'm looking for a trailer, preferably four by six. Ah. So I can haul the uh, shed. Oh, and I did, uh, I popped the shed up, uh, fixed out one hole that was in it. Okay. Went ahead and sprayed a couple of cans of uh, surfacing on the, the top half around it, lubricated the zippers, got the, uh, the aluminum poles all cleaned and shiny and siliconed. So we are ready to use the shed again. Got the uh, heater ready. Well, so, and actually, maybe that's a good point before we get to the end of the show. Why don't we go ahead and bring up, it is now, you know, I've been hinting that if you want to dive in the cold weather, you need to start preparing for it now. And uh, I'm not going to say it's too late, but it would have been much easier for you to have been doing it all already. And, okay, but I was just saying, if you're going to be diving the cold water time of the year, uh, you should have been doing it by now, but it's not too late. You can go ahead and start upgrading your gear, which Rick's back in the chat room, which I'm sure he'll like if you go into his shop and, and pick up some uh, warmer gear. But if you're wetsuit diving, uh, you know, upgrade the gloves. You you go from your 5 mil or 3 mil summer gloves to some 5.7s. Uh, you go 5-finger or 3-finger or even mitts. Uh, upgrade your hood. And then what Mac was talking about with the ice shanty, that makes it bearable. If you start off cold, you don't have a lot of time in the water. So that ice shanty to dress and undress makes a world of difference. Uh, we've got a, an a ice shanty. How big is that? That's probably about a, a five foot or six foot by six, five foot by five foot maybe? Yeah, it, it's a two-man ice shanty yeah. uh, that you can stand up on with two zippers, uh, you know, two entries. And that works out really good with one person at a time because getting your gear on and off, you know, put a, you put a chair in there, it works out real well. Yeah, it, it does. And then we've got a propane heater that we put in there and warm it up. And you can get that up over 80, 90 degrees, even in some of the coldest weather, the wind blowing. Uh, it, it's excellent and uh, it, it makes it easy. And then somebody in the chat room is saying, get a freaking dry suit. Well, even with a dry suit, you need to have that space to change in. Uh, frozen zipper and you're driving back in your dry suit in your car. So it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you have to have a dry suit. I'm, I'm not sure where this fanaticism for dry suits comes from. <laughs> uh, I, I, I just don't understand that fascination with dry suits. Yeah, I know it, it just, it's a little overrated. So I think we, we as all you, all you dry suit guys, you haven't done an <laughs> ice dive till you've done an ice dive in a wetsuit. So uh, and you have to use a wet to come on, polar bear. <laughs> come on. Step yeah. those damn tanks on and get in the water. <laughs> yeah, I got the chat room going. So, uh, but yeah, now's the time to be out there diving. It's some of the the best time of the year. 
the, the water visibility. Now we've been having rain for the last week, so that's not going to help us that much. But uh, you get some improved visibility in the rivers, and then it won't be long before we'll have hard ice, and that's going to kick us out of the rivers, and we're going to have to break out the chainsaw. Yeah, that's the only thing is when you have to have dive equipment include the chainsaw. <laughs> that, that's a little rough. Yeah, well, this means you got to prepare a little bit more. And uh, uh, but the only downside I've had with a chainsaw is just the amount of oil that seems to put in the water. So uh, it does tend to, you know, you get that little bit of bar oil no matter how much you, you do that. And, then, and we got to get that video up. I probably have, have teased that five or six times on here, but we have the, the video. I'll, I'll get out to Corner Gym this weekend and maybe see if he can post that up. On our YouTube uh, site, we do have a YouTube feed which has some videos of us doing ice dives. And we have a video of the chainsaw cutting through the ice from underneath, which I don't think I've seen That's anybody else so cool. That's cool. To do that. So we'll, we'll have that coming up here. Uh, and so if get anybody out. wants to bring their skis and ski upside down on the bottom of the ice where it's really smooth, come on down. We'll do that and video that for you. Yeah. Uh, do your bicycle upside down on the ice. Come that'll on be, out. That'll be neat. Opportunities. Not to do all that sort of stuff. So we're we're not too far away from that. Uh, we'll have some nice ice dive. So even if you can't afford a dry suit, you can still be out and be diving. Absolutely. So, a little prep there. You won't get you know an hour dive, but you can get a good, easy, good twenty minutes with a seven mil. Yeah. And uh, the visibility improvement in a lot of lakes is well worth the time. It certainly is. And then as uh, Rich has also pointed out, it does burn off some calories. Now, I haven't personally observed any of my calories being burned off by diving in the cold, but I'm sure that does happen. Um, well, I uh, think we accidentally put some back on because we always go out to eat after we dive <laughs> during the winter. You know, we have that soup and the coffees and you know, that leads a bigger meal sometime. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And and some of the things that I didn't talk about is underneath that wetsuit, and you can go ahead and throw on some polyester undergarments. That will help you warm up. I'll prime with warm water. So I had uh, Lake 16 diving, and we were diving at some pretty uh, depths. You know, that, that wetsuit is compressing down, and we had 39 at the bottom, and I had a 35, 40-minute dive on it last time, so... You can get some some longer dives in, and then the yes, trick that is starting warm. And you, you can't start cold. You know, keep your gloves on, keep your hoods on. Yep, I do like my uh, three finger mitts though. Uh, the five fingers are all right, but uh, my three fingers really keep my hands warm. And like like you you mentioned, you need to practice with your mitts if you're uncomfortable with them. Being able to turn your tank on and off, put your regulator on with it, because you don't want to get your hands cold on the surface before you go down. Yeah. And Rich also in the chat room mentioned that they do have battery-powered undergarments, which I have seen some of those that are suitable for scuba diving. They're they're water-rated. I've also seen some where you can kind of heat up before. Also some sort of like a chemical pack that can be used. So there's different options for that. I haven't done any of those those type of packs. The, the gel packs, are, are, they work out pretty good. Uh, the normal hand-warming packs don't work good unless you've got a dry suit. And then, because you got to have air for them to metabolize or whatever you want to call it, yeah. to give you the heat. So if you're wet, it ain't going to work too long. Yeah. Uh, in a dry suit, it can be. Uh, we don't recommend taking 9-volt batteries and putting wire around the end. Uh, that <laughs> will make it very hot, but it would be very bad in a dry suit. Yeah, that, that would not work out too well. So that, that kind of does it for this week. Gosh, I just we get, we get to that point of the show again, I think. 
And the chat room's talking about P valves at this point. So <laughs> uh, that's why with a wet suit, you ever got a built-in P valve? Yeah, yeah. My 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 P valve in my wetsuit works great all the time. Yeah, never have to worry about it. Okay, so again, thank everybody for coming to the chat room. We had uh, Bill, James, Rich, Dave, Shipwreck, Mike, and then we had a few uh, new people. Uh, also, so thank you very much for coming on in every Thursday, nine o'clock. I think we might have Claire. She was going to be this week, but got tied up with work. So I think she might be in next week. And then I'm still twisting Jim's arm. So uh, we'll we'll try and get him to come back on the show here soon. And then we got some interviews lined up. Uh, just got to get some stuff finalized and maybe we'll have some videos to go along with those interviews. So are you ready? Go ahead. One coming up that we will be probably talking with uh, Mr. Schultz. Yes. When he announces the uh, findings of the of the wreck, the Southwest Michigan wreck we've been diving yes. with. Uh, that'll be, I mean, he's making the announcement up at the Maritime Museum on the 27th, I believe, of November. Okay. So he we'll, dives the 26th. So after he does. After, this week. That's right. Yeah, after he does that, we'll have to get him on the show. So look for that the first part of December. Right, and we'll have our new president here talking to us, and it, it'll be great. Club president, yeah, the, you know. The club, the club president, which we haven't drafted yet. What's that next week? <laughs> you know, the uh, Tuesday is the meeting for the for all the election night. I did put the newsletter out already. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, maybe coming out with a cold or something. You don't have to be there to be elected. <laughs> <laughs> that's usually the that's actually that's uh, usually the best way to get elected is not sure. Yeah, you, you can't you can't say. Well, I'd rather not. If you're not there, you know, not that we'd necessarily elect you in Argentina, but the potential <laughs> is always there, I suppose. Okay, so here we are, that bad scuba joke of the week. A wealthy scuba diving couple had planned to go out for the evening. The woman of the house decided to give her butler Jeeves the rest of the night off. They said they would return home very late and that he should just enjoy his evening. As it turns out, however, the wife wasn't having a good time at the party at all, so she came home early, alone. Her husband had to stay there as several of his important clients were there. As the woman walked into her house, she saw Jeeves sitting by himself in the dining room. She called for him to follow her and led her into the master bedroom. She then closed the door and locked the door. She looked at him and smiled. Jeeves, he said, take off my dress. He did this carefully. Jeeves, she continued, take off my stockings and garter. He silently obeyed her. Jeeves, she said then, remove my bra and panties. As he did this, the tension continued to mount. She looked at him and then said, Jeeves, if I ever catch you wearing my clothes again, you're fired. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. That, 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 did that qualify? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh. I still oh. like Claire's. Like, what was, that was Claire's last time, right? Oh, no, Tara's? Tara's? Yeah. Her joke? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, she did have a good one. So. Oh, yeah. So, until next time, you know, for myself, Matt, Claire, Jim, everybody else on the podcast, go out there and get wet. And be safe, guys and gals.
Call recording has been completed. Wow. So anybody in the chat room want to come on real real quick? We'll 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 drive you nuts. <laughs> <laughs>